It's good. Pulls up the excitement. Tefillah is such an integral part of our Vodas Hashem, and yet it is so unclear, so ambiguous, where and what our obligation of Tefillah is really all about. I mean, of course, we're all familiar with, you wake up in the morning, you're in Shachar, it's Mincha, you know, a lot, a lot of different Tefillahs that we're all familiar with, but in terms of what the basic structure, what the basic obligation, the basic formulation of Tefillah is all about, we have to take almost a little bit of a step backwards, both halachically and historically, and then to understand what tefillah is, what role tefillah has, and particularly as the theme of tonight is really the unique aspect of tefillah as it, during an Eistzor, during, during a time of, of crisis, which uh, unfortunately, uh, we probably didn't think that we would still be giving sure about tefillah Eistzor, but unfortunately we still are. So much of Ilchus tefillah revolves around a poskin chomish that we're familiar with, we say it several times in the course of the day, in commands us to be Ovid Hashem, to serve a Kaddish Baruch with all of our hearts. And the question is, what does it mean? What do the words mean? How are you Ovid Hashem b'chol leiv? So Chazal tells us in Maseches Tainis that Ezo Avedi Shivalei. What is an example of an Avedi Shivalei? Something that really comes from the heart? Zot Tefillah. This refers to the mitzvah of Tefillah. And as such, this seems to qualify as a mitzvah in HaTorah, one of the 613 mitzvahs. If there's a mitzvah to Davin, so it's no less of a mitzvah than any other mitzvah in HaTorah. However, what is unclear is, how often are we supposed to Davin? When are we supposed to Davin? Where are we supposed to Davin? What are we supposed to Davin? The Torah doesn't say a word about it. So here was a major machlokas, a major dispute between two of the Rishonim, the Rambam and the Ramban, as to how do we understand what the Torah's obligation of tefillah is, it's going to set the stage for our discussion tonight. So the Rambam's view is, is that one is obligated, min Torah to daven, to be mispalel, every single day. One of the obligations that are incumbent upon everybody, and we'll see as we go on, man and woman alike, according to the view of the Rambam, is to daven min Torah daily. What is the text of that davening? The Torah doesn't say when during the course of the davening does that t- during the course of the day does that occur? The Torah doesn't say. Where do you daven? The Torah doesn't say. The answer is, says the Rambam, that according to Torah law itself, tefillah is a very individualized mitzvah. It is a mitzvah that knows no time, knows no format, no given written text, no place. It's simply the opportunity to speak to Kodesh Baruch Hu, wherever that takes place. And in fact, the Rambam writes historically. During the days of Bayes Rishon, and you're talking about from the time of Matan Torah until the end of Bayes Rishon, you're talking about quite some, Mount Torah, you're talking about over 800 years, says the Rambam, the mitzvah of tefillah was exactly the way I just described it. It was personalized, there was no set tefillah, there was no shvan esrei, there was no zman tefillah, it didn't matter whether you davened at the 7 o'clock minion, the 8.15 minion, there was no minion, there was, there was no public tefillah. Tefillah was each and every person on their own speaking to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That is the mitzvah of Tefillah Minat Torah, says the Rama. And there was a tremendous shift, a tremendous change that occurred in the beginning of Bayesheni. And you're talking about, in Jewish history, that's relatively modern history. That's only 2,400 years ago. You know, that's just put things in the proper perspective. What occurred was that the Jewish people went into Golos, went into exile, People were no longer proficient in speaking Lashna Kodesh, in speaking Hebrew. People didn't know how to express themselves properly to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. 
And the Yafad HaChachim in that generation, and we're speaking about the days of Ezra, Nehemiah, you know, Mordechai from the Megillah, you're talking about pretty, pretty big names. The Chachim in that generation realized that we have to put some kind of a formal text to Tefillah. We have to commit it to some kind of, in a sense, something that it's not up to each individual whim what they're going to or not going to daven for. We have to have a set time, a set, a set text, a set place, a format of Ilchus Tefillah. And Chazal, the Ruach Kotchom, and their understanding, they instituted for us the Tefillah that we are familiar with, the text of Tefillah, the Shvan Esrei, the Brachas, the timing, you have to daven at the right time, you have to daven in the Minyan, that whole, the whole nuance of Ilchus Tefillah that we're familiar with is required mid the Rabbanon, argues the Rambam. It was instituted for very, very good reasons at the time that it was, and of course it lasts till this very day. But Min Torah, the model of Tefillah, is the Rambam, is a daily obligation which has no form, no time, no set pattern whatsoever. Comes the Ramban and disagrees with the Rambam. Comes the Ramban and says, Min Torah, according to pure Torah law, you don't even have to daven daily. When do you have to daven Min Torah? says the Ramban? When there's a real need. When there's what we call an ace tzara, argues the Ramban. When there's some kind of an emergency occurs, whether that uh, crisis be a time of war, whether it be a time of famine, a time of illness, whatever the case may be, that is the Torah obligation of tefillah. Now again, it doesn't mean, according to the Ramban, that we're not davening Shemon Esrei every day. That's, as we said before, that was instituted by the Chachamim. We observe mitzvahs de Rabbanon with the same fervor, the same excitement as we perform mitzvahs de Raisa. Purim is only midrabanan. Chalik is only midrabanan. We take those yom tov pretty seriously. So muktz is only midrabanan. We take that pretty seriously. So comes the halacha and says, according to the Ramban, min haTorah tefillah is reserved for an ace tzara. So here we have two different approaches, two very very different worldviews of what is the Torah model of tefillah. Practically, everyone's davening the same thing in the uh, Tavshin Zaydalid. We're all davening from the same city, same Shvat Esrei, yeah, and the Sarashvat is explained a couple of differences here and there. But we're all basically davening the same way. But in a philosophical point of view, what is the Tefillah in Torah? According to the Ramam, it's daily. According to the Ramban, it's the Esrei. Rabbi Salavechik put forth a very, very uh, powerful message as to how to understand what is the root of this dispute between the Ramam and the Ramban. The Rav explained that ultimately everybody agrees that tefillah is an Esratzon type of an obligation, an Esratzon type of an obligation. Tefillah is fundamentally reserved for crisis. Tefillah is a time that you speak to Kaddish Baruch Hu when there's a great need. But the Rambam had a restructuring. What does it mean in Esratzon? Says the Rambam, you know what Esratzon is? When you wake up in the morning on a regular Tuesday and there's no war going on, and there's no famine, and there's no crisis, and there's no magefa, nobody's ill, says the, uh, says the Rav, Bidas and Rav, that's also an Esetzar. Nobody knows what the next day is going to bring. Nobody knows what is around the corner. And therefore, we view life as an Esetzar. Every single quote-unquote normal day has the potential, Khalila the Khalila, to become transformed to an Esetzar, and therefore, we, in a sense, jump the gun with tefillah. We don't wait for the Ace Torah to occur. Our tefillahs preempt the Ace Torah, says the Rav. According to the Ramban, when the Ace Torah presents itself, that's when you approach HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The Ace Torah isn't there yet, then you're not technically obligated to be misfollowed. So it puts a little bit of a frightening spin, a little bit of a, of a, of a nuance on what, how we're supposed to look at our lives. So even on days when Baruch Hashem... Things look like they're okay. Don't take anything for granted in this world. 
A tefillah is the model, says the Ramam, of speaking to a Kaddish Baruch Hu as the way to intervene in a Kaddish Baruch Hu even before the tzara occurs. So, Bein Lefiyah Rambam, Bein Lefiyah Ramban, Ace tzara is critical. The notion of a time of distress, a time of difficulty, a time of illness, a time of war, a time of famine, is something that is important in terms of governing Yuchos tefillah. The question is, where does this idea come from? What is the source for this notion that Ace Tzara is the ultimate tefillah that we have? So the Rabbah makes reference to Psukim in Sefer Bamidbar that speak about the mitzvah of Tekiyas Chatzotzros. There's a mitzvah, we're probably not familiar with this mitzvah in the sense of we probably never heard those Chatzotzros, but I will repeat that statement, not that we ne- probably never, none of us ever heard the Chatzotzros. They have been blown in about 2,000 years. There is a mitzvah in Torah to blow silver trumpets under two different types of circumstances. Psukim and Pashas Baloscha. They are blown on days of great celebration in the base of Mikdash. Uviyom Simchaschem of Moadechem, Roshichachachem. They are blown on Yom Tif, they are blown on Rosh Chodesh, they are blown during times of great uh, fanfare and great victory. And they are also blown at a different time, a very, very different type of mindset. They are blown at times of war, they are blown at times of famine, they are blown at times of plague. There's a mitzvah tekiyas chatzotros, argues the Ramban, the ace tzara. Says the Ramban, why are you blowing chatzotros? What is that all about? You take silver trumpets and you blow, do, do, do. What is that all about? Says the Ramban, do you remember tekiyas shofar? Says the Ramban, it's the same thing. The tekiyas, the sounds that we blow from the chatzotros, are a form of tefillah. And as such, the Torah is presenting us a model. This is how we approach a Kaddish Baruch at a time of tzara. We blow chatzotzros, we blow silver trumpets. Those silver trumpets are indicative of a form of tefillah. What kind of tefillah? What is the message of those trumpets? We're going to try to explore that as we go on today. But, argues the Ramban, the ultimate tefillah experience in the Torah is reflected in that description of Hashem's Baloscha, that's the that's the prototype that is the model of excellence of an Aisara, and that is what Hilchas Tefillah is all about. That is the primary mitzvah of an Aisara, is to be mispalot with the assistance of those trumpets of those chatzotros. So we're probably wondering, well, wait a second, what happened in chatzotros? How come we haven't heard of them? Where did they go? We've never had a lot of Aisaras in the last two thousand years. Why hasn't anybody thought of reinstituting that mitzvah? So the Magad Avram lived already several hundred years ago, already was bothered with that question. And the Magad Avram says, I'll tell you a very, very simple answer why we don't blow Chatzotzros. The Magad Avram lived in Poland in the 1500s, and he says it's a Poskin in Chumash. Remember the next word? In your land. Says the Magad Avram, the blowing of the Chatzotzros only takes place in Eretz Yisrael. It does not take place in Chutzlaretz. As difficult as the Tzoros may be, as the Crusades and the pogroms may have been, the the mitzvah blowing Chatzotzos is reserved for Eretz Yisrael. So that answer that was given by the Magad Avram sufficed for the next about 300 or so years, and the question was revisited in Eretz Yisrael. The question was revisited in different types of Tzoros over the years, and the question was actually posed very realistically, why don't we blow Chatzotzos? We are... Nebuch in an Eistzara, we've been in Eistzara for months already. What happened to the kids? Why isn't there any blowing of the silver trumpets? What happened? So Rabbi Meshach Feinstein was actually asked this question, not this time, but he was asked this question years ago. There have been many, many, Nebuch, many Mechavits in Eretz Yisrael over the last several decades. And Rabbi Meshach Feinstein was asked this question. 
How come in 1967 we didn't blow Chatzotzros? How come in 1973 we didn't blow Chatzotzros? How come in 2023-24, why are we blowing Chatzotzros? And Ramesh responded at the time, 40, 50 years ago, Ramesh responded to the following. Now if you look carefully in the Chumash, so the description of the Chatzotzros are such that they're blown in the base of Mikdash at times of great joy. And they're also then taken during times of great sorrow, and times of great stress, and times of great distress, and they are blown to Kaddish Baruch Hu, the Eist Tefillah. Says Rav Moshe, you don't just make Chatzotzros for a war. You don't just turn to Kaddish Baruch Hu when things are in distress. You turn to Kaddish Baruch Hu at two different times. You turn to Kaddish Baruch Hu in times of great joy, and you turn to Kaddish Baruch Hu in times of great despair. You don't just make Chatzotzros because you have a problem. You make chatzotros because this is the way we talk to Kaddish Baruch Hu in the good times and the not such good times. And therefore, we're holding off on those chatzotros. They will be reenacted. They will come back again, but they're going to come back again at a time when they can be blown the way they should be. With the great simcha, the great joy, that's the mitzvah of chatzotros. But although on technical grounds, we don't blow those chatzotros anymore. We don't blow the silver trumpets anymore. I want to spend a little bit of time just understanding what they were, what their role was, and again, as the Ramban is telling us, they are so critical, understanding what they were about is so critical to understanding what feel of Eistzara is, what our response is supposed to be by Eistzara, how we're supposed to formulate our Tfilos, if you look at that model of what those silver trumpets were all about. So those silver trumpets have been gone for quite a long time. We haven't heard those sounds in 2,000 years, but HaKadosh Baruch Hu almost gave us a little bit of a, of a remembrance of those Chatzotzros. For those who are a little bit into history, so you may know about the Arch of Titus. The Arch of Titus is very famous for the imagery of the menorah which is on it. It is the arch that was actually made right after the base of Victor was destroyed. It was, the architecture was made at the time of Titus, the emperor at the time. And he made it to celebrate the parade of the vessels of the base of Mikdash as they were being paraded to the streets of Rome. Chazal talk about that parade. Because I'll speak about it, about the, the tragedy of the Romans who captured and stole all the gold and silver from the base of Mikdash and brought it back to Rome in a victory parade. And we have to corroborate that, the, that the pictures of Chazal, we have the, the, the arch. The arch is there. It's standing there in Rome. You can go visit it until this very day. So if you look very, very carefully at the Arch of Titus, besides the menorah, which is the most uh, prominent part of it, there's something else in the background. It's the silver chatzotros. If you look carefully, it's obvious. It's the trumpets that were also stolen from the Beis HaMikdosh and were melted down, and who knows where, where those, uh, those candles are sitting at some point uh, today. But the silver chatzotros were, were uh, engraved in stone almost to be a reminder to us that 2,000 years later, we remember, there used to be a tefillah of silver trumpets. There used to be a v'chitzavah There used to be a time when the Jewish people called out to HaKadosh Baruch accompanied by those, those spiritual instruments it behooves us to take a moment 2,000 years later as we experience an Esar that we haven't had in such a long time. What was the message of those Chatzotzros? What are we supposed to remember? What kind of images are those holy trumpets supposed to uh, conjure up for us? And how does this play out in terms of Atfilas? So I'll share with you what the Chatzotzros sounded like. I, I, my musical ability is not exactly the best, but you bear with me a little bit, okay? So see if you can recognize what the tune is. This is exactly what the Chatzotzros sounded like. The Gemara tells us it was identical to the sounding of the shofar. 
that the way the breakdown of the trumpet blast was, it was absolutely identical to the way the shofar sounds, and we know exactly what a shofar sounds like. It starts out with a straight sound, then it enters into a broken and then it concludes with a straight sound. Now, if you remember, I know it's not exactly Rosh Hashanah time, I know people are probably more in mind Pesach, I, don't want, I, don't, I just created another HSR for some people who haven't mentioned that, but, but if you remember way, way back to Rosh Hashanah time, so we actually, when we blow shofar, we blow shofar in three different ways. We blow, it's called a tekiya, then we blow a then we blow a do, and then a do, 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 and then we blow a do, 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 do. We call it kia shvam truat, kia shvam tkiyat, kia truat kia. The reason for all that is, is because Chazal tell us that we're not 100% sure what that middle sound is supposed to sound like. We know we have a tradition that the middle sound is supposed to be a broken sound, and it's supposed to resemble a crying. That we know for a fact. That was Nimsat the Mashurban and Hasinai, that the middle sound of the shofar has to be a crying kind of a sound. But Chazal tell us that different people cry in different ways. Some people cry, just think for your kids a minute. Some do, and some they look, and then when they look around and see they really get a lot of attention, then it becomes a. So Gemara says three different kinds of cries, three different kinds of shofars. So we really make the Baltakir, we're caught in Rosh Hashanah. We want to walk out of Shul on Rosh Hashanah saying that we're good to go. We've been Yotzeh no matter what. We've been in Shul for so long. Imagine you pay for seats in Rosh Hashanah, you sit there till 1 30 afternoon, then you walk out scratching your head. Well, we really Yotzeh, we're not really Yotzeh. And then uh, the briskets will tell you, no, you have to come back before Nimcha for the extra tekiyas and the Lamashvarim. And uh, those are really the Chumras that we don't bother most people with. But everyone agrees we have to blow straight sounds, crime sounds, and straight sounds again. That's the model. That's the tzura. That's the dogma. That's what the Torah tells us to do on Rosh Hashanah, and that's what the Torah tells us to do at the time of an ace Torah as well. That is how we blow those silver trumpets: a tekiya, trua, and a tekiya. Let's think for a moment what those sounds make up. What exactly does that mean? So Chazal tells us that the trua or the shvarim or the shvarim trua are the signs, are the sounds of crying. That's what it has to sound like. It has to sound like a cry, like a wail, like a sobbing. Why is that so important? Why is that so critical? That almost like the, the integral part of the mitzvah, both of shofar and of the time of war, is a sobbing type of a sound. What is it about the, that crying, the bechi, the demos, that's so critical? The Quran tells us in Masechus Bavmetzia that when the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, so sharit filos ninalu, but the gates of prayer were closed off. In other words, our tefillahs that we have today do not penetrate the way they did in days of old. Works a little bit, because Baruch still hears that tefillah, Shemad tefillah, because Baruch hears that tefillahs, but it's not the same. Things have changed radically since the destruction of the basic victim. Sharei tefillahs dinalu. And nevertheless, Chazal tell us, Sharei tefillahs dinalu, or Sharei demos lo dinalu, that the gates of tears were never closed. What is the difference in the gates of prayer and the gates of tears? Tears you can't fake. Tears are something which is authentic. When a person davens, we talk the most, with tears in his eyes and her eyes, those, te- those te- prayers, those tefillahs, are coming in halev. And dvarim hayotzim in halev, chazal tell us, something that emanates from the heart, enters into the heart as well. And kaviyochol enters into a kaddish baruch hu's lev kaviyochol. When a person davens of the mouth, a person davens with tears, so that, that is the statement that this tefillah is authentic. 
Whatever words a person says, you've got to you know, rush to the Shrona Esrei and turn the pages. That's beautiful, wonderful. You should, you should daven. Everyone's got to daven. Try daven at the right time. Try daven at the right place. Daven a minute. Whatever, whatever the proper doom of davening are. But the tefillah that pierces the heavens are the tefillahs that are shari the most. And that's the model of Tekiah Shofar. And that's the model, the extension of the blowing of the silk with trumpets. That we get to the punchline, it's got to be a... It's got to be that we break down. It's got to be, it can't be a straight key anymore. It can't be a word anymore. It's got to be something that's broken. It has to be a broken soul. It's got to be when a person is so tzabrach and a person is so broken and they turn to HaKadosh Baruch and we talk demos, shari demos, lo denalu. That's the mitzvah of tefillah, the Torah. That's the ultimate, that's the prototype mitzvah. So yes, all the regular dav that we do all the times is important, but the tefillah that really matters in Shemayim are the tefillahs that enter mitoch aleiv nishbar v'nikel akim l'sirzeh. The Rebbe doesn't turn back a heart that's actually crying. So I think that's one important message in terms of the significance of the chiyos of tears. There's something else important about the sugya of the moles and the sugya of the chatzotos, the sugya of that broken coal. And we have to go back once again to reference a little bit back to Rosh Hashanah. If you go back in your mind, almost about six months already, Back to the Yantav of Rosh Hashanah. So if you remember that there are a lot of major players throughout the Davin of Rosh Hashanah, throughout the Kriya Torah of Rosh Hashanah, throughout the Haftarahs of Rosh Hashanah, who are constantly crying. It's almost like everyone's handing out tissues on Rosh Hashanah. Everybody's crying. Every third, everybody's crying. You start the Kriya Torah, and all of a sudden, everyone's breaking down. Hagar is uh, Hagar's crying because Yishmael was sick, and, and Han is crying because she doesn't have a baby, and Rachel is crying in the Haftarah, uh, because uh, bechi, and all of a sudden somebody else is crying. We never even heard about. We don't remember her since fifth grade. You know what her name was? Who remembers most, the most famous cry in Rosh Hashanah? The mother of Sisra. Remember? I, I don't. Since I was an SAR in fifth grade, we never heard. For some reason, somebody decided that we have to learn all of Shira's Devorah about Peth. Why? I don't know who decided that. It took about, about six months of fifth grade because that's what I did all day was this memory. I can't remember. When they get to the after, I can't remember the first line of it. But Tosha Devorah, Baruch Hashem, I can't remember how little the first possible. But Chazal tell us, if you look at the very end of that, of that story about the mother of Sisra, so the mother of Sisra is crying. She's waiting for, for her big boy, Sisra, to come back from war. And the Pesukim say that she knew exactly what he was. She knew what kind, of a, what kind of a monster he was in war. She knew what kind of a terrorist he was. And she's standing there at the window and looking, waiting for him to come back, and he never returns. And she cries. All of a sudden, and she, and she becomes the model of a hundred kolos. That's why the Midrashim say, we blow an extra couple of kolos at the end of Rosh Hashanah because of her tears. So everyone's crying. So Rachel's crying for her children, and Hagar's crying for Ishmael, and Hannah's crying for her baby, and sister's mother's crying for her child. Everyone's crying for Rosh Hashanah. But if you look carefully, you'll notice they are very, very different kinds of cries. There are fundamentally two different types of individuals who cry on Rosh Hashanah. There's the Chan and the Rachel, and then there's the Hagar and the Aim Sisra. And if you look at the context of the tears, a very, very powerful image and message begins to emanate. Hagar breaks down and she starts to cry back in Pasha's Vayera. Why does she cry? She cries because her son is sick, Yishmael is sick. And what does she do? She walks away and she says, I don't want to have anything to do with him. She says, and she breaks down and crying because she says, he's not going to make it. And she starts to cry 
wallowing in self-pity and crying. And the Pesach says explicitly, the Torah even says how far she stood away from her child. The Torah feels the necessity to tell you she sat X feet away from her dying son and she breaks down in tears. That kind of crying is a crying of selfishness. That kind of crying is a crying for your own sorrows. That kind of crying is not for somebody else. If she really was crying for her, for her baby Yishmael, she should have sat next to Yishmael, held his hand, and tried to give him a little bit to drink. He needed some water. That's what she should have done. What she did was, she was crying for herself. She wasn't crying for somebody else. Aim Sisra. She breaks down in tears. She's a Looks like a pitiful lady. After all, her son hasn't come back from battle. And the Pussy continues, who is this little boy, this little Sisera? The little Sisera, right, is the one who killed and maimed and mutilated people on the battlefield for years and years and years. It was a Russia Marusha who was tortured, Claudius Yisrael, for so many years, and she's crying for him. such a person. That's it. You don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to cry for such a person. So comes the Navi and highlights that a person who cries for the wrong things, the person who cries for themselves, the person who doesn't cry for, for real Rachamim, such tears don't register in Shabbat. Who are the models of the people who cry? Who are the ones that we look to? We look to Chana. We look to Rachel. If you look carefully at Rachel, when Rachel cries, Mini we sing it all the time. I'm for sure not going to try to ruin that tune by trying to sing that. <laughs> Rachel's crying, she's hysterical, she's crying for her sons. Wait a second, anyone remember who, who exactly who are Rachel's sons? Let's try to chaza for a second. Yosem and Yom. Who is passing by Kevin Rachel on the way to Golas? Primarily, 90% from Shevet Yehuda. Rachel's son, Yosef, Ephraim and Nash, had gone to Gauls 100 years before. Who is Rachel crying for? She's not crying for her son. She's crying for her sister's son. She's crying for somebody who wasn't even related to unrelated. It wasn't, it wasn't her own children. But to her, there was no difference. There was no difference whether it was her son or her sister's son. Rachel of Akhavanel. She was someone who was crying because she felt the pain of somebody else. It wasn't her per se. And yet she was able to muster up real tears. That was Rachel Lishitasa. That was Rachel's approach to life. She was the one who saved her sister the embarrassment uh, hundreds and hundreds of years before. That individual who cries and feels the pain of somebody else, those are the tears that register in Shemayim. So just because a person is brought to tears, those tears are not necessarily reminiscent of Rachel. Those tears are not necessarily Bechios. That, that penetrate in Shemayim, the tears that penetrate Shemayim are the genuine tears, the tears that, that, that penetrate in Shemayim are the tears that cry for real Racham Shemayim, the ones that cry because somebody is really suffering, even if that person is not necessarily myself, but I feel the pain, I feel the agony for somebody else. Those are the tears. I've said many, many times uh, on Rosh Hashanah that the fourth Kishofer, many people you know, start to think about all the needs and all the trochim and you know, the, the last moment, a few minutes of the kid before the kid shofar, and they start to think, I need this, I need that, I need this and that. It's all good, that's wonderful. A person should try to take those moments to, to connect with the Baruch Hu. But stop for one minute before the kid shofar. There are seven Lamatzech and Mikroch Mizmo, so at least give one of them to the following. Look around 
are different people in shul. And for a minute, think about what the other person needs. Sometimes we do know, sometimes we don't know, so we have an inkling where other people's tzorachim are. Look around a little bit, and the same way that you're tearing and shedding tears for yourself, shed a pure tear for somebody else, those shari demos lo demos, those tears will never be closed off. That's what it means to be So we have a model of the blowing of the silver trumpets. The silver trumpets, like the shofar, involve tears, involve bechi. The mo's are something that penetrates shamayim. The types of tears that penetrate shamayim are genuine, they're authentic, they're not a show, they're not they're called crocodile tears, they're something that really comes from the heart, they break the heart, and they're primarily for, not just for myself, we cry for others, we cry for colleagues, we cry for our neighbors, we cry for our friends, we cry for other people's stuff, and we cry for our own. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong, we don't have to be such great sadiq, we don't down for ourselves, we're supposed to down for ourselves. But don't only doubt for yourself. Don't be like the hog who becomes so self-absorbed. Don't be like the mother of sister who becomes so self-absorbed in her own son's tzara and doesn't see all the tzaras and everybody else, all the innocent victims of her son. So try to focus and try to see how we can, we can expand that feelings a little bit to include other people's struggles as well. If we go back to that model of, um, of Tekiah's shofar and by extension of Tekiah's Hatzotros, the idea of blowing and crying, and being mispalel based Sarah. So if you think about it, that model that's presented is also a very, very powerful model because it starts out with the key. It starts out with the straight sound. It starts out with the, the strong, you know, that, with that baltakea gets that first, Doo! it's powerful. There's a lot, a lot of oxygen going into that, into that key. And then, we go to the, you know, it's kind of broken, we're going to start to shake a little bit, shudder a little bit, and then we stop, then Tekiah again blows the strong again. What is the significance? What is the imagery of that model? That we start strong, we break down a little bit, and then we come back strong again. If you think about it, that's the model of Ashmanesri. Every Shmanesri that we dive in is actually that. Chazal tell us that the Shmanesri is divided into three different sections. The first brachas are the Shevach to Kedush that praises the Kedush Baruch until I kill Kedush. Then we go for Abba Koshis. We go for the things that we ask for. We ask for Slichan uh, Araveras. We ask for Fuashlemas. We ask for Sikhas and Parnosa. We ask that we move out of the private requests. So we ask for Kibbutz Goliath and Binyan Shalayim and Mashiach to come and Shemayat Tvila. So we have a lot of a whole laundry list of requests for Kedush Baruch. And then we stop. Shemayat Tvila ends. And then we move on to a different theme. We start thanking Kaddish Baruch Thank you for all the beautiful, wonderful things that you have given us. So we have Shevach, we have Bakoshes, and we have Abdul. Praising, requests, and then thankfulness. If you think about it in our mindset, in our hearts, how do we feel at each one of these different stages of tefillah? When you say the Shevach of Kaddish Baruch that's a very uplifting statement. You think about how great Kaddish Baruch is. That's like, there's majesty. When you approach a king, you, know, you don't talk to the king like you're broken, like you can barely say a sentence. You're standing straight at attention. We're standing with a sense of pride, with a sense of strength. We're in the army of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We're praising HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We, str- we talk from a very, very strong vantage point. We get to Kalakadosh, and we say, okay, that's all true. And now, Rebun Shalom, who do we think we are? Like just a minute ago, we stood straight and tall and all proud, and now we we realize, without your help, we we can't figure anything out in this world. Without you, 
would just wallow in our chatoim, herotzah b'tshuva, without your, uh, your love, without the mechilas avonus, and geula, and refuah, and parnoso, and one after another, after another, kibitz goliyos, and achadus ha-shoftim, and Yerushalayim, and Mashiach, and we just, we just break down the bakoshas break us down. When, you, when you're daven bakoshas, so you're sobbing, either literally or, or figuratively. The bakoshas speak to us about our own human frailties. They highlight just how much we need a Baruch in this world. That's bakoshas. Bakoshas are the true. Bakoshas are the breakdown. Bakoshas are the tears. But tefillah doesn't end with bakoshas. We then pull ourselves together. We you know, pick ourselves up, compose ourselves. And then we come to Kaddish Baruch HaTzim, we have so much to be thankful for. With all our problems, and with all our tzaras, and with all our frailties, and all our problems, we're alive, we're here, we're functioning, we're... All of a sudden, we stand up strong, we stand up proud again, we stand up with such tremendous across the top to Kaddish Baruch that's the model, that's how Tefillah ends. Because ultimately, these three different dimensions make up our life. Our life, we switch back and forth. Uh, you know, go back and forth and back and forth in terms of there are times in life where we feel very good about ourselves. There are times in life where we feel very fulfilled. There are times in life where we feel that we are in the army of Hashem and we are the soldiers. We are standing tall and strong and proud of what we're doing. There are times like that. And then there are other times in our life where we just feel like we're falling apart, where nothing's going right. We just don't know where to put ourselves that's okay. That's, there are a lot of brachas for Nasir that talk about that. But life doesn't end like that. For a person who their entire life ends up just being bakoshas, and just ends up being tzibrach, and just ends up tears, and ends up crying, and just talking about all the problems and all the negativity, Shmanasir doesn't like it. If you end Shmanasir, Shmanasir, Tfila, you aren't yet Shmanasir. You have to go to the ends, and you have to say, wait a second, I'm going to with all my problems. And there are a lot of them. I have 13 more brachas of problems. With all my problems, Chazal say, Ma'is Onen, a person doesn't have a right to complain. You know what? Gevra Chai. It's alive. That's the end of the discussion. The game's over. It's end of discussion. The problems and issues. I need Rafuan, I need a Parnassan, I need Yeshua, and I need, we all need, we all need those things. That's right. But at the end of the day, it's Ma'ivanach Banecho. That's how we blow Chatzotus as well. Chatzotus talk to Klaus or a Sarah. So an ace Sarah is a lot, a lot of truas, a lot, a lot of cries, a lot, a lot of bech, a lot, a lot of demos. But to think that that's going to be the end game, that the end of Klal Yisrael is going to be something which is an ace Sarah, chalila v'chalila. The end of Klal Yisrael is going to be a chayenam subiyadecha. The end of Klal Yisrael is going to be nisim, galuyim, akadosh baruch. It's going to be once again reveal himself to us. So yes, we're in a really, really tough time. This is... You don't need me, you don't need, a, don't need my political analysis to understand that this is such a tough time. This is, I think, probably for everybody sitting in the room, this is the toughest time that the Jewish people have, have uh, underwent. Some of you in the room maybe, uh, I don't know how many people were, uh, remember back in the days of the Yom Kippur War, I was a little, little boy. I did not understand what was going on, but, but uh, I had like a mashup, like a tipashim, 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 of of hearing I saw terror in people's faces. That I do remember. I remember as a little boy in Yom Kippur seeing terror in people's faces. I didn't understand it. I had no idea what was going on. But at least, at least I saw it. Six days ago, I was two years old. I can't tell you. I don't remember too much. But those are maybe the only two moments in, the, in Jewish history that come anywhere near 
to in a sense of where we're experiencing now. So this is an asura of, of, of monumental proportions on so many, so many different levels. And yet, we believe in Amun Shlema that you don't end Kiyah Shofar with Truas. If you don't blow that last key at the end, you didn't fulfill the mitzvah. If you don't blow that last key at the end of the Chatzotras, then you didn't complete the job. So the Chayisol don't end with the Nesh Tzara. There's a pause. That's a long one, and there's a very, very long Shemineshah that we're in right now. It's a, it's a Muslim Rosh Hashanah, a little bit longer than we would have wanted, and yet, there's an Al that's going to come around the corner. So Yotzebed Varim, for us, we are now experiencing that Baruch put in this generation, put this in our, in our, uh, our reality, this is Sarah. These are times where mitzvah tefillah, tefillah mitoch bechi, tefillah mitoch the most, the feeling, the pain, the feeling of, of to connect to Kaddish Baruch at a shari the most, Lord and Olos, the time to have reinforced Abuna Shalema that the bechi is not the end game, that the end game is going to be the Achenam Subyadachah. So if uh, Titus or Russia, when he tried to destroy the base of Mikdash and, and killed countless and countless, countless uh, Jews, and the Eistzara was Ein L'Shabi and the that was still suffering from 2,000 years later, the destruction of the base of Mikdash at the ends of the Romans, but if a Kaddish Baruch Hu, uh, put into the mind of some, uh, some Roman uh, architect, when some artist, some sculptor who was trying to make a little bit of a picture as to what was going on in the streets of Rome, and somebody he thought it would look cute and look nice to put in the chatzotras in the back scene, that wasn't for Titus to see, that was for us to see, for us to remember that the chatzotras are the symbol of the eternity of Kuala Yisrael, the symbol that there is going to be an end of the truos, and the tekiah is going to come back, and we're going to be able to, to sing that, uh, that praise for Kaddish Baruch Hu at the end of this Eitzara. So we hope and pray that uh, this is the last of the Shiurim uh, in Yonim of Eitzara. We hope and pray that we'll be able to give Shiurim soon about how to be Meshavach Kaddish Baruch Hu when all the Yeshuas begin to, to break forth. So I, I, I don't have a Kaddish to put it on the schedule, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk to the people in charge. to give. I'll be more than happy to try to give the first inaugural Shia to celebrate uh, the wonderful Yeshuas in time. Thank you.